More Palestinians in Gaza before the war blamed Hamas for their conditions than the Israeli blockade of the Strip, which is interesting. And so now it seems like a lot of that is starting to bubble up to the surface where people are frustrated with Hamas because they're like, you know, things were shitty, but they weren't like this. Welcome to the Powers That Be Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Wednesday, February 14th. Today, I'm joined by Julia Yaffe to talk about her interview with one of the rare pollsters taking the temperature of everyday Gazans. What do Palestinians in Gaza really think about Hamas, a two-state solution, and the war ripping their territory apart? And later, Bill Cohan joins Ben to discuss Adam Newman's bizarre attempt to buy back WeWork. We'll discuss all that and much, much more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Are you tired of sleeping hotter than hell? I sure am. I sleep hot. There's something crucial about sleep that eludes us when we're too warm, too uncomfortable, and too caught in the web of our own thoughts to drift off. And while curiosity fuels our days, science tells us that cool sleep recharges our nights. That's where Chili Pad by Sleep Me comes in. Meet the bed cooling system that elevates the quality of human life through cool sleep. The ChiliPad bed cooling system is your new bedtime solution. I love it. It lets you customize your sleeping environment to your optimal temperature, ensuring you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. ChiliPad works with your existing mattress. It's a water-based mattress topper that continuously controls your bed temperature from 55 to 115 degrees, allowing your body to rest and recover. This isn't just about escaping the heat, it's also about optimizing your sleep for better health, more energy, and improved physical and cognitive performance, which I obviously need hosting a podcast. Chili pads are designed for one or two sleepers, so if your sleep partner likes to sleep at a different temperature, or you only need it for one side of the bed, that's okay too, and we know that's crucial. Plus, you can schedule automated temperature changes to trigger deep sleep. But when I'm at home, Chili Pad solves those problems. So trust me on this one. Visit sleep.me slash powers to get your chili pad and save up to $315 with code powers. This offer is available exclusively for powers that be listeners and only for a limited time. Order it today with free shipping and try it out for 30 days. You can return it for free if you don't like it with their sleep trial. Visit www.sleep.com. Dot M-E slash powers, because you're not just investing in better sleep, you're creating a better life. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Happy Valentine's Day to those who celebrate. I'm joined today by Julia Yaffe to talk about what's happening in Israel and Gaza. As we're taping this, President Biden and Jordan's King Abdullah have said that they're working on a hostage deal. They want a six-week pause in the fighting Uh, King Abdullah said he wants this war to end now. Both of them have said, and this is interesting with Biden specifically, he he seems increasingly exasperated with Benjamin Netanyahu, and he's speaking out more in defense of all of the Gazans who have been either killed or displaced. Julia, I wanted to talk to you about this because you just talked to a very interesting scholar and pollster actually about this. Amini Jamal, she is the dean of the Princeton School of Public and International Affairs. 
She's one of the only people in the world who does public opinion polling of (laughs) Palestinians in Gaza. And so I wanted to ask you maybe what people there are thinking right now. I feel like in Western media, voices of Gazans are, are frequently not included in the narrative, partly because to get into Gaza, reporters have to embed with the IDF. What did she say? Like, what do what do Gazans want? What do Gazans want right now? So right now, Palestinians in Gaza want one thing and one thing only, and that's for the fighting to stop. They want a ceasefire. They want the bombs to stop falling. They want the guns to stop shooting. And then after that, they want a real and durable peace so that they can rebuild their lives with a political horizon and have a state of their own. I think that's um, kind of the general sense, but that's definitely the sense I got from uh, Dean Jamal of Princeton's public policy school. So they want a two-state solution, according to her? So that was one of the really interesting and surprising things I noticed in Dean Jamal's study, which she published an article about it in Foreign Affairs back in the fall. And ironically, and totally by coincidence, she stopped polling in Gaza, or the organization she runs stopped polling in Gaza on October 6th. I shit you not. And one of the very surprising, I mean, there were many surprising uh, takeaways from that study that she did, but one of them that really jumped out at me was that Palestinians, uh, both in Gaza and the West Bank, overwhelmingly said they preferred a two-state solution, and almost nobody, like barely single digits, said they wanted a one-state solution, which is, Mm. you know, if you live in the West and, and you're kind of plugged into progressive liberal circles is the preferred policy solutions. That's the river to the sea solution. Yes. Ideally, in this kind of policy view, it would be one state from the river to the sea where uh, Israelis and Palestinians would live under one government, one state, and have equal rights, equal civil rights across the board. And what was interesting is it seems like Palestinians aren't interested in in that at all. It was like 1%, Hmm. 2%. Uh, which was fascinating, but two-state solution got like 70 to 80%, um, depending on West Bank, whether you're asking uh, Palestinians in the West Bank or Gaza. And Mm -hmm. so it was interesting to talk to Dean Jamal about that. So why do they prefer a two-state to a one-state solution, Julia? Well, according to Dean Jamal, and I, I think we all see this ourselves, Palestinians have a very strong national identity, and they see that Israelis have a very strong national identity. Um, They see that Israel was founded as a Jewish state for Jewish people, and that they don't feel represented by that. They also see that Arab Mm. Israelis, you know, uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel, uh, are in certain contexts um, treated as second-class citizens. So why would you want to be part of something like that? Why not have your own kind of state. But it is interesting, as Dean Jamal put it, you know, the the lived experience of Palestinians on the ground, what they want, and what kind of the diaspora and the progressive left and the West believes and how how different they are. So she finished her last survey right before October 7th. Does she have any sense of what has changed in the minds of Palestinians since then? Obviously, next to impossible to conduct polling (laughs) while there is a ground invasion and a war happening uh, in in Gaza, a place that was already hard to poll. But has she been able to glean any insights from 
shifts in public opinion, perhaps? Yeah. So she, of course, said it's pretty much impossible to do a real kind of scientifically rigorous, statistically significant study of Palestinian public opinion in Gaza because uh, the entire population has been displaced, essentially. And Mm -hmm. sending people in to poll Palestinians would place them in great and mortal danger. So it's very hard to do. But her sense from kind of talking to people is that uh, Palestinians are, of course, enraged at Israel. Uh, They want this to stop. But they're starting to also be very frustrated with Hamas, that there are kind of protests periodically popping up of Palestinians expressing their incredible frustration with Hamas, whom, according to Dean Jamal's own research, which again, in Gaza, you know, wrapped up on October 6th. And that kind of pre-war research showed that Palestinians living in Gaza did not like Hamas. They didn't trust Hamas. They saw it as corrupt. Uh, They saw it as oppressive. They felt that they couldn't express themselves or um, speak freely. They felt that Hamas could not help them or fulfill their needs. You know, there was great poverty and, and hunger in Gaza before the war. And ironically, more Palestinians in Gaza before the war blamed Hamas for their conditions than the Israeli blockade of the Strip which is interesting. And so now it seems like a lot of that is starting to bubble up to the surface Hmm. where people are frustrated with Hamas because they're like, you know, things were shitty, but they weren't like this. Like we weren't living in tents in the rain. We weren't starving. We didn't have whole families wiped out. We had homes. We, you know, had some kind of life. And Hamas is apparently, uh, according to Dean Jamal, cracking down on those protests, which again is why Gazans did not trust Hamas or feel safe speaking their minds before October 7th. So typically in times of conflict, there's a a rallying effect, you know, a patriotic effect sometimes. In Israel, for example, different factions within the Israeli government and political spectrum sort of put aside their differences and came together, forming like a wartime cabinet. We're all in this together, state of Israel. Mm -hmm. Um, It's sounding like from what you're saying, though, Gazans aren't really rallying around Hamas here. And they're even more frustrated. Is that right? Well, I think some are. Some are rallying around uh, Hamas. They're especially rallying around them in the West Bank because they don't live under Hamas. They live under uh, Palestinian Authority rule and Israeli mm-hmm. occupational rule. And they see the PA as a feckless, useless sellout, corrupt sellout. And I think that is an accurate view of the PA. And they look to Gaza, where Hamas is still engaged in active fighting. It's firing back at the Israelis. It's killing Israeli soldiers. It's still shooting rockets at uh, Israeli cities. And they see Hamas as the only force that's defending Palestinians or fighting back against the uh, the oppressor, right? And so that mm. was the other thing that Dean Jamal said, uh, which was that every time there's been a round of fighting between Israel and Hamas, uh, Hamas's position is always strengthened, which is one of the things that Dean Jamal kind of implied, which was, you know, going into the October 7th attack and the Israeli response, Hamas's leadership was in crisis, as she put it. It was a crisis of legitimacy, crisis of complete ineffectiveness. And now in many places, including in big pockets of Gaza, their position is strengthened. 
And it's kind of mirrored, uh, I know I'll get a lot of shit for this, but it's kind of mirrored on the Israeli right, right? Like Bibi was under a lot of pressure domestically. There were protests all the time, like all day, every day for months. And now he, you know, for the first few months of the war, at least people didn't protest against him because the country was at war and we have to Mm -hmm. orient all of that anger outwards, right? We have to, we have to defend ourselves and survive. And then we'll think about the politics later. That's obviously starting to change in Israel, but yeah, war tends to kind of strengthen these nut jobs. Julia, thank you so much for your insights. Everyone go check out her interview with Amini Jamal on Puck's website, of course, and please subscribe to The Best and the Brightest, and you can get it right in your email. Julia, thank you so much. Thanks, Peter. When we come back, Bill Cohan is here to talk about Adam Newman and WeWork. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash powers that be, netsuite.com slash powers that be. That's netsuite.com slash powers that be. Welcome back. I'm Ben Landy here for a very special episode with Bill Cohan. Bill, great to see you. Ben, always great to be here with you on a snowy day. Always great, always special. <laughs> yes. I wanted to have you on to talk about one of your favorite people I know, Adam Newman, the uh, grifter, spiritualist, mumbo jumbo, we work founder who tried to elevate the world's consciousness and the company into a $47 billion valuation before the IPO famously failed. And then there was a spec and ultimately a bankruptcy. Newman, uh, amidst all that, slinked away with uh, a multi-billion dollar payout. Good for him. But now he's back trying to buy back this company for pennies, presumably. Uh, It's a distressed property. You got to admire this guy's audacity, um, which is maybe what it takes to succeed in the real estate market. But um, Bill, give me your read on this bid. Uh, Who's involved? What's the potential financing like? and, And what does it all indicate to you about whether... Newman trying to buy back WeWork is actually the real deal. Yeah, I think it um, is the very definition, uh, Ben, of uh, chutzpah. Obviously, you know, founded the company, you know, hyped it up for years. Uh, As you said, promised a, a revolution in the way we work, no pun intended. 
and live. And, uh, you know, it wasn't a terrible idea, uh, but obviously the hype around it got way overextended uh, to the point of uh, a $47 billion private market valuation. uh, And then the IPO filing kind of crashed it all and it crashed and burned with SoftBank, uh, the Japanese uh, uh, investment fund, really taking it on the chin. Somehow, instead of, you know, going to jail, uh, like some of his other hype artists, he uh, walked off with close to a billion dollar settlement between cash and, and loan that he got. So it's quite amazing. He then you know, tried to lay low for a few years and then started a new company, uh, Ben, called Flow, uh, which is uh, <laughs> that's, where that's he's right. T- to Tell do- us about Flow, because this is really Newman back on the almost the exact same bullshit. Yeah, this is Flow is really quite something. Basically, he, you know, bought 4,000 apartments, uh, mostly in the southeast Florida, in a bunch of buildings and was going to uh, sort of revolutionize the way, you know, rental communities, you know, exist uh, instead of being sort of isolating and forlorn and people coming and going. Uh, he was going to turn them into, you know, real communities where people could uh, commune with each other, have uh, socialized with each other. And the real promise was somehow, he, although he never quite specified how this would work, converting their rent payments into some sort of equity ownership in in the buildings. Anyway, he's uh, created Flow. He then somehow managed to get an unsolicited investment from the great Andreessen Horowitz, a $350 million investment uh, at a valuation in excess of a billion dollars, you know, Mark, which Mark Andreessen personally uh, oversaw. Uh, and of course, he's so brilliant that we all have to sort of genuflect in his direction. He must know something the rest of us don't, uh, Ben, because he made this. Uh, it was the biggest investment ever in that Andreessen had ever made. So here you got this guy who, uh, uh, you know, destroyed $47 billion in value uh, through WeWork and getting a new investment from Andreessen Horowitz at uh, $350 million. So, uh you know, so that's been going on. And then, you know, fast forward to last week, uh, you know, since then, of course, uh, we, WeWork, as you mentioned, um, was a private company, uh, merged with a SPAC, went public, uh, and now, you know, is trading literally for pennies on the dollar after a bankruptcy filing. Uh, they have $4.2 billion of debt that basically they're going to uh, convert to equity as part of, uh, you know, the bankruptcy process. And uh, then, in earlier in February, the uh, WeWork, which uh, you know has uh, exclusive right to uh, file a uh, plan of reorganization and um, disclosure statement, uh, filed it on Sunday, I think February fourth, and then on February fifth, for some reason, in a leak to the New York Times, uh, Adam Newman's non-bankruptcy counsel uh, at Quinn Emanuel, Alex Spiro, who's also Elon Musk's uh, favorite lawyer, you know, wrote a letter uh, essentially saying they wanted to buy uh, WeWork out of bankruptcy, but without specifying how uh, he would do that or why it would be good for uh, Adam Newman to own WeWork again. So on the audacity uh, meter, 
Ben, I think it's uh, kind of like off the charts. Um, <laughs> all right, there's a lot of stuff I, I want to dive into here, but um, the involvement of Alex Spiro is, is kind of odd to me. And you wrote about this a little bit the other day, that there's been some sort of perplexing moves from Newman as he's circled WeWork. Um, he's moving towards some kind of offer for it. But so far, what, what he's been doing hasn't looked to you like what you'd expect in terms of the kind of offer he could make. Is that just because like Spiro himself is not a finance or a real estate guy? Like, Is Newman getting bad advice or is there something else going on here? Well, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure. You know, I assume he's uh, hired. Uh, I mean, he, you know, look, bankruptcy is a very uh, intricate and technical process. It's not like, you know, sort of your usual M&A uh, process. There's all sorts of filings and the debtor has certain rights, creditors have certain rights, uh, outsiders, you know, every, every company in bankruptcy is a company for sale. And if you do it right, uh, and if you're smart about it, you can uh, end up with the company, but you have to do it right. You have to be well advised about the bankruptcy process and uh, what's going to happen when. And, uh, you know, Alex Spiro, I'm sure is a great uh, attorney, uh, but I assume has very little uh, knowledge of the bankruptcy process. Now, uh, you know, I, I also assume that Adam Newman is not a total idiot and must have must be getting some bankruptcy advice. But the way to do it, the, the most obvious way to do it is to, uh, you know, buy chunks of the debt that's going to be converted to uh, equity in bankruptcy. Uh, you buy it at a discount. I'm sure it's available at a severe discount from its holders, from the people who, uh, for whatever reason, uh, either bought it at par when it was uh, issued as part of the uh, SPAC deal or it's traded down and, you know, want to get out at, at a profit. Um, he could, I, I would think, for not that much money, probably, because, uh, you know, there's $4.2 billion of debt, but there's only a few tranches that are going to be converted to equity. And, you know, I'm sure those are trading, uh, you know, for kind of pennies on the dollar, although I'm not sure. Anyway, if he if he went that route, he could you know, buy that debt and then, you know, sort of uh, get control of the company by converting that debt to equity as part of the bankruptcy process. There's no evidence that he's done that. Uh, so that's one route he could have gone. Another route he could go is uh, just in a sense, uh, underwrite uh, the debtor's plan of reorganization. So, you know, usually the way these things work is, you know, the, the debt gets converted to equity, uh, into new equity that's, you know, probably will trade on some market uh, on a when-issued basis. And then when it's issued, we'll trade some more. And But those are all people who don't want the equity. They'd much rather have cash. Uh, and so if he can come in and sort of underwrite the plan of reorganization, like, as I recall, uh, Sam Zell did when I was advising Revco back uh, in, in the late 80s, early 90s. That's another brilliant way to get control of the company. You basically offer the creditors who are getting that equity cash at a uh, attractive valuation, and they'll sell it to you. And then you'll get the company that way. Uh, I don't see any evidence that he's done that. Uh, he could also, although that's a little early perhaps for that, he could also, you know, uh, wait for the exclusive period uh, that the debtor has to file the plan, which they did on February 4th, although it's still a long way from being confirmed, to file his own competing plan with the bankruptcy court, uh, and offering creditors more than the debtor's plan. He can do that at some point. That would be another way to do it. All, all these things can be done and have been done and are not reinventing the wheel. Uh, but if you were really serious about buying the company as opposed to just a publicity stunt, 
uh, then you would think about doing those things. Uh, I don't see any evidence that he's thought about doing any of those things. Also, I think quite telling, uh, you know, he's sort of claimed that uh, uh, Alex Spiro claimed that Dan Loeb uh, uh, was involved, our friend Dan Loeb at Third Point Hedge Fund was involved, and then the FT reported that Seth Klarman was involved. I mean, if you've got Dan Loeb and Seth Klarman on your side, that's pretty impressive, but where's your buddy uh, Mark Andreessen? You know, he's like the biggest uh, non-Adam uh, Newman shareholder in Flow, and if Flow is going to buy WeWork and combine the two, why isn't uh, uh, Mark Andreessen out here uh, you know, proclaiming the wisdom of this deal and, you know, how he wants to help out, make it happen. Also, very quiet from uh, Mark Andreessen. Right. That that part is, is totally strange and mysterious. And it seems like there's some ambiguity, too, around how involved Dan Loeb really is and how far along these conversations are. But, you know, Bill, as you're talking, I just got to say, like, once again, you have to admire the audacity on some level that, um, you know, if the ultimate goal in, in finance is to, uh, you know, buy low and sell high. I mean, here, here's a guy who like walked away with a huge amount of money and now he's swooping back in, trying to make this thing work again now that it's worth very, very little. But Bill, last question for you. I mean, do you see the the seed or the germ of any kind of good idea here whatsoever? I mean, WeWork is a, it's a real brand. It's out there in the world. People know it, people use it. It's not making money. But do people in your world, people in finance, people on Wall Street see a way for Newman or his ilk to turn this thing around? I mean, it's always sort of mystified me that the margins in this business are not huge and it's a very cyclical business and it's in a lot of trouble right now, commercial real estate, residential real estate, post-COVID, and especially with rising interest rates. So why now? I mean, is, is this just a matter of, of, of Newman seeing opportunity and trying to strike while the iron's hot? Yeah, I mean, I think, again, the, the, the debtor filed th- their plan on February 4th. So I see the February 5th date uh, of the Spiro letter to the debtor's attorneys at Kirkland and Ellis uh, sort of perfectly timed to either be part of the uh, process now going forward when the company is starting to emerge from bankruptcy or to disrupt that process. I mean, so that I see uh, t- uh, timed. Uh, to uh, be part of, you know, the bankruptcy process that's, that's going on. Again, I, I don't think it's particularly well thought out because if you really wanted to be part of it, as I said, you would buy the debt or you would somehow, you know, tell creditors you are, are interested in underwriting the plan of reorganization, you know, the, the equity value and the plan of reorganization. So I, I haven't seen any moves that show a real desire to uh, own this company. I think the irony of him... Uh, owning it is, uh, you know, rather stunning. Uh, and the claim by Spiro in his letter that, you know, uh, uh, Adam Newman is the guy to run WeWork because of, you know, his brilliance. And uh, also, uh, you know, when uh, Mark Andreessen made his investment in Flow, he talked about, you know, Adam Newman's brilliance. I don't know why these people think Adam Newman is so brilliant. He destroyed $47 billion uh, of of value. He was brilliant in walking away with a billion dollars for himself instead of going to jail. But, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I see the, the brilliance or the wisdom of him uh, owning it again. I, I also say, Ben, there, there seems to be a little bit of an epidemic in M&A circles uh, these days, you know, between people like Byron Allen and his, you know, supposed 
bid for for Paramount Global and now Adam Newman with this thing. I mean, there's a lot of faux M and I'm I'm not sure what it, what it is, uh, but like these public announcements of interest, uh, and then there's nothing to back it up. Uh, is really quite you know surprising to me. The way to do deals if they're really happening is the way that you know Bio, uh, uh, who's you know the lead invest uh, the lead uh, was the lead director of Goldman Sachs, sold his uh, company for whatever thirteen fourteen billion dollars twelve billion dollars to BlackRock. I mean before, which happened a couple of weeks ago. You know nobody heard a peep about that uh, until it happened, as opposed to. You know the Byron Allen leaks, the Paramount Global leaks, this silly leak. Uh, you know, this is FOME, faux M and A. Ben, I'm trying to make that work. Uh, I, I don't see it. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't see it. Yeah, faux M and A. I, I like that. Um, yeah. Got to leave it there. But thank you, as always, for coming on, sharing your wisdom. Always great to see you. Thank you, Ben. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Ben Landy. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Odyssey. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Bob Tabador, and Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck.